Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, my guest today is author Mark O'Connell, whose latest book, Notes from an Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back, is out now in paperback. In the book, Mark examines his own anxiety and places it in context as he travels to far-flung corners of the globe to investigate how various groups and individuals see themselves as, I suppose, to a large extent, preparing for the end of the world as we know it. The result is... A fascinating odyssey that's both informative and, I have to say, shot through with humour. Uh, it's also beautifully written um, from a stylistic point of view. I think you'll, you'll, you'll find that as well. At the end of it, you may not feel better about the world, but you will in all likelihood feel some bit nourished by a damn good read. It's Mark's second book and his first to be a machine examined transhumanist evangelists. And we'll get to that. And they're people who wish to operate as part human, part machine. That won him the Rooney and Welcome Literary Prizes. He's from Kilkenny and lives in Dublin, but his career largely bypassed the domestic publisher or journalism route. And he began to make a name for his work by contributing to publications like The New York Times and Slate. Mark, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. Pleasure. Mark, just before we get to notes from an apocalypse, your name, I think, will be familiar to those of us with an interest in books, but not perhaps to a wider audience that would, you know, know the names of authors, but not necessarily their work through appearances on radio and TV and that kind of thing where they tend to pop up. So tell us a small bit about yourself. You're from Kilkenny. How did you get into the writing business? Yeah, um, the writing business, I suppose, was like, I, I kind of came into it sideways. I... Uh, like I'd written a fair bit as a like a younger person in my twenties or whatever. I would have written a bit of freelance work. Uh, I wrote a lot for a magazine called Mongrel, which was kind of a free magazine that um, was kind of around in the um, I suppose the early to mid aughts, the sort of uh, late kind of Celtic Tiger period after college. Um, and then I went and did a, I sort of disappeared for a while and I did a, a PhD on uh, John Banville of all people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of, um, I, I suppose I almost became an academic, but the, the sort of arse fell out of the, the academic world after the crash in, in 2008. And all of a sudden the job prospects were less kind of, uh, fruitful. And so I guess I'd kind of like, I'd always identified as a writer more than a scholar. And so I was very interested in like, how I was writing rather than what, what I was writing, which is an, an unusual thing, I suppose, for an academic of, of any sort. Um, and I towards the end of my time doing a PhD and then doing a postdoc, I started writing uh, kind of personal essays. I, I wrote a lot about, I wrote a lot of like kind of 
um, literary essays about books and my life as a reader and an academic and stuff. And I was just lucky that some of those pieces got sort of widely read. Um, and, you know, I suppose the internet helped a lot in that sense. Um, and then I kind of, I suppose the way that I look at it is that um, the stuff that I do now, the the writing that I do now, with, particularly with my two books, is a kind of amalgamation of the sort of like scholarly bent that I would have um, developed in my time uh, as an academic a mixture of that and this sort of, I suppose, kind of gonzo journalism stuff that I was doing earlier on with Mongrel. And there's a bit of a, an uneasy kind of alliance of those two impulses that's, I suppose, going on in my writing. Yeah, I tell you one thing, it's, it's a lot more accessible than scholarly work, which is a fantastic thing to have that facility. And did you study in Dublin? Yeah, I studied in Trinity. I mean, I spent pretty much all of my 20s and a chunk of my early 30s in in trinity um so yeah i just i guess i the the imperative for me was always not to have to get a you know real job avoid gainful employment at all costs i worked in news talk for a while actually for about a year and a half i think as a a researcher on news talk and then as you say you moved on and you started writing books and got a great reception uh definitely critically and i think to a large extent commercially but Timing is everything, I suppose, Mark. And in, well, I suppose it's a double-edged sword, really, the fact that um, Notes from the Apocalypse came out at the beginning of our current, uh, would we call it, <laughs> the Italian apocalypse, but pandemic will do, as it is, uh, just about 12 months ago. Um, did you plan that? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm flattered that you, you think I would have had that level of foresight. No, not only did I not plan it, but uh, I mean, at the time, it, it seemed like a complete, obviously, it, it was in, in a general sense, an absolute disaster. But it seemed for me, personally, and uh, professionally, a complete disaster. I mean, the sort of perception around it was that it couldn't have come at a better time, just from a purely kind of mercenary point of view. The book couldn't have landed at a more like apposite moment. Uh, but for me, it was like, uh, it was bewildering because, you know, I'd spent, I guess, the guts of like two, two and a half years, you know, r- reporting, writing, thinking about researching uh, various kind of versions of the end of the world and how people prepare for like apocalyptic civilizational collapse scenarios and really thinking through the angles on a lot of this stuff. And as anyone who's read my book will have no doubt noticed, I think I mentioned viral pandemics once, maybe twice in, in passing in the whole book. Uh, so that was a bit of a strange one. I mean, it was not the sort of apocalyptic event that I would have been thinking about particularly. I mean, it's, as I say, it's mentioned in passing, but it was just very strange and very kind of ironic at the same time to have this book come out at this particular time. Like I remember, you know, when you, when you publish a book, you get uh, maybe a, a, a month or six weeks before the book comes out, you get a big box from your publisher with like 25 copies. And, uh, you know, I got the, the copies of the American edition of the book from my American publisher. Uh, and they arrived at just about the time, I think it was like the, the very start of the lockdown. The book came out in April, sort of late April. And it was the very start of the lockdown. And I remember getting the, the box from the DHL guy and he was wearing a mask and I had to put on like plastic gloves. This was at the time when everyone was <laughs> freaked out about like surface transmission and I was putting on plastic gloves and I was like I didn't have any masks at that time and I remember thinking like should I you know I was sort of turning away from the book as I was open from the box as I was opening it didn't want to breathe in whatever particles were in there 
And I just thought this is crazy. Like that this is the, like, that this is my first encounter with the physical object of my book about, you know, the apocalypse, that, that, that it should come in this way is, is, you know, a little too kind of on the nose. But yeah, it was just a weird time for everything and for everyone, but it was a, certainly a weird time to publish a book about what I was it, publishing. It was about. because, as, as you said, you're such a touch on, and I think most of those might have encountered the likes of the possibility of nuclear war or, or, or a, a climate catastrophe were touched on at times and you had images in various stages, something like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, but uh, the pandemic, nobody, <laughs> nobody foresaw that. No, having said that, hopefully... It ain't the end of the world, but anyway, give us all a bit of a shock. Um, you began, Mark, in in the book by laying out your own anxieties and and those that you were conditioned with as a child who grew up at the height of the Cold War, and then I suppose the more primal ones of um of being a parent. Um, I suppose I was just wondering in that context, what were you hoping for in exploring the world of those who are kind of anxious on an existential scale? Mm, well. So yeah, it, it did start in that. It started from my own kind of personal unease about really mostly climate change. I mean, the book to me, when I think about it, is a book about climate change. It's not, you know, it's not a typical climate change book in that it's not, I'm not talking about the melting of the polar ice caps and what's going to happen and facts and figures and so on. But that that's the sort of the background vista against which the book kind of takes place is this assumption that the future is very dark and very unknowable. And this like thing is... is is coming and in some ways is already here. And what does it mean to live at a time when the future is so dark and to have children and so on? So these were all the uh, things that I was thinking about. And I didn't really have a way to write about just the kind of shapeless kind of shifting mass of my own anxiety. That's not a topic for a book, at least not for a writer like me. So I needed some kind of way to give it form. Um, And, you know, I, I touch on this a little bit in the early part of the book where you know I was I was trying to get gain purchase on it both like personally and just as a writer because I knew like the, it tends to be that the things I'm most anxious about the things I'm most kind of preoccupied by are the things I wind up writing about in one way or another so I'd been spending a lot of time it seemed at the time that I was wasting a lot of time uh watching like YouTube videos of doomsday preppers mostly sort of american guys talking about their you know their stash of of uh, tin goods and how you know their so-called bug out bags where they have all these like you know specialist items that a person might need if they were going to head out into the wilderness during like some kind of apocalyptic event be it a nuclear strike or you know an asteroid hitting or whatever it might be and i got really preoccupied with these people and the way that they talked about their anxieties and the way that they talked about preparing for them. Um, and I kind of realized at a certain point that actually there's something here that is like a, an opening to a, to a larger uh, encounter with apocalyptic anxieties. So for me, it became a way, like writing about those people uh, and, and eventually going out into the world to meet people like that and to sort of talk to them about their anxieties and, and what how they envisioned the end of the world. That kind of became a way for me to um, sort of look for external manifestations of my own kind of inner states. Not that I am in any way a prepper or in any way share any of the kind of cultural or political proclivities of these people, but, you know, it, it became a way to, to find, as I say, like external kind of manifestations of these 
internal states and to kind of negotiate them and, and write about them in a way that was kind of vivid and, and entertaining and not just like me sort of sitting around moping. There's a bit of that in the book. Definitely there's a bit of that, but you know, there's only so much of it you can get away with. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've just, there was one passage there in the introduction where you, um, you referenced growing up yourself at, at the time of the Cold War and, and a, a little demonstration, I think you said, that your uncle showed you uh, in your grandmother's house about the, uh, the, the, the nature of the two superpowers. He demonstrated with oranges and apples and Ireland's location sort of in the middle. And uh, here was where the, the, the whole, <laughs> the whole, the shit could go down in a major way, to put it that way. And, and, and he says to you, when that happens, <laughs> it's good night, Irene. Good night, Irene. Yeah, it's funny the things you remember. And that like, if you were to, I mean, it's sort of set in stone now that I've written about it, but that always seemed to me like it, maybe that's my earliest memory, actually. Um, you know, this was like, I suppose, I guess it would have been like mid, late 80s. Like I was, you know, fairly young, but young enough to get old enough to kind of remember things. And uh, yeah, like I did have a sense of like that sort of, you know, the obviously the anxiety of the Cold War would have been kind of tapering off at that point, but it was still in the culture and it was still in how people talked. And I remember like a combination of that and like a little bit later, I suppose, the hole in the ozone layer, CFCs and all that stuff definitely impinged on my kind of psychic world as a kid. So all that stuff kind of came up again when I was writing the book. And all of which is to say, I suppose, that like the apocalypse is always sort of a going concern. You know, it never really goes away. It just takes different forms, you know, depending on what's happening in the, you know, politically or what's happening geopolitically or in the culture or whatever. And that's an interesting thing. Actually, I thought, you know, and it's been... That issue, the Cold War and the apocalypse, just thinking there, the likes of the Butcher Boy touched on it, that Pat McKay's book, yeah, in, yeah. in various ways, uh, from a child's perspective. But in a way, it's interesting looking back on it now, or maybe it's just perhaps because we're past it, we don't take it as seriously, that the, the, the apocalyptic threat at that time compared to now seems so more less complicated and so straightforward. But I suppose then again, I'm speaking myself as well from the perspectives. I, I was I would have been a child at the time for most of it. And maybe that's just a came maybe an older generation would suggest, well, no, we actually were very anxious about time. But from here it certainly seems that way. Because even as you point out, there are so many things now to be worried about that can go wrong compared to then. Well you're right, it is a much simpler I mean I don't know what, whether I'd swap, but like, you know, given knowing what we know now, none of that stuff happened. And so it was a kind yeah. of a binary either or. Like I remember to like my dad talking about like being in uh, secondary school during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I was just, even as a younger kid, I was like really fascinated by what that must have been like. You know, even in Ireland, like the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs, all that stuff, that was like, it could have been good night, Irene. You know, as far as people knew, the world was on a knife edge. Um, and obviously it's very different now. Like the sense of like the apocalypse means something different now. You know, it's not, we're not talking about lights out. We're not talking about a sort of, you know, an existential threat in the sense of like humanity could be wiped off the face of the earth. We're talking about like, you know, the difference, you know, as I say, the difference between three degrees and four degrees warming is the difference between civilization remaining and, and collapsing. Um, some kind of, you know, human existence will, of course, persist uh, and probably li life, you know, life will change with climate change and it will change in probably horrific ways, but it's not going to be the wipeout of, of humanity. 
Um, but we also kind of don't really know what we're talking about when we talk about the future. We know, like, we know what the, you know, uh, sort of physical effects of a certain amount of, you know, climate change will, will be, but we don't know what the cultural effects of it will be. We know they're not going to be good, but we don't have that same vivid sense of like, you know, a flash on the horizon and, uh, that kind of cold war sense of the end of the world. So, yeah. And I think that's kind of, I, I suppose I try a bit in the book to, to, to sort of parse how that gets under our skin as people and that sense of like unknowable pressure from, from the future is really interesting to me. Like I wanted to write a book about climate change that wasn't full of... Like, about climate change. That wasn't about climate change. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, and that was mean, about yeah. like what it's like to live at a time when this is kind of hanging over us, you know? Absolutely. And yeah, and I suppose... The other thing about the, the 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 previous threat, as was seen, at least there was some indication uh, at some level that there were individuals there who uh, would make the final decision and that you were of the opinion that they were rational beings and therefore hopefully it wouldn't come to that. But then, as I say, we're talking from 2020 vision, as you say, it didn't happen. Tell me, Mark, about uh, Peter Tile, the man who made his billions with PayPal. Mm, Pete? Peter Thiel is that he's um I mean he's a I guess a figure of enduring fascination for me. I wrote about him in my first book. He's a, a sort of a major investor in the kind of transhumanist technologies and research areas that I write about in that book. But uh, you know, when it came to, to this book, he is I mean he, he was someone who around the time I was starting to write this book, he was being talked about a lot in relation to his um having essentially bought New Zealand citizenship um, as a means of buying up land in New Zealand. Um, New Zealand has very kind of strict uh, rules around ownership of land by foreigners and even stricter now. Um, but um, the perception was that he was buying land in New Zealand because he wanted to build uh, a sort of an apocalyptic compound whereby if the shit hit the fan in the rest of the world and in, in the US and in, and in Europe, he would be able to retreat to New Zealand and have this place to not, not just like, um, not just, uh, sort of weather the storm, but, uh, you know, kind of build a, uh, a, a sort of a, a nascent, um, utopian society in, in New Zealand. There are all these kind of rumors and, and sort of hearsay swirling around, Peter Thiel. And he's a fascinating figure to me because, he, you know, he doesn't speak publicly all that much, but when he does, he says the most outlandishly provocative and kind of chilling things. I mean, he's extremely right-wing. His, um, his sort of view of uh, democracy is that it's no longer compatible with capitalism and therefore it has to go. Um, and so <laughs> he's very, very influential in, in Silicon Valley as a, both a venture capitalist uh, for obvious reasons and uh, and as a kind of a thinker as well. So yeah, he's a figure of, of uh, real sort of dark fascination for me. So yeah, I went to New Zealand uh, and uh, essentially trespassed on his apocalypse land and wrote about it. Yeah, I mean, there's something, uh, I, I, <laughs> there's something interesting about the fact that even in a global context, if things were to go wrong, the belief that you could find this corner beyond the reach of uh, everything else that might be catastrophic for the globe in, in in today's world is uh, is interesting in itself. Like you know, I mean, going back again to our 
Cold War. You might understand it in that context as a retreat, but I just wonder about the various threats that are there now. But uh, Elon Musk, of course, is a man who wants to head off to Mars to, to, to get off the planet altogether here. These tech billionaires, there's there's a theme there with some of them, isn't there? Yeah, well, I mean, I was really interested when I was writing the book in how the apocalypse is not just uh, this kind of, uh, like sort of blank slate onto which people uh, sort of project their fears. It's also, a lot of it has to do with fantasy. And, uh, you know, the apocalypse is kind of an an opportunity for a lot of people. And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about the relationship between like the idea of the end of the world and capitalism in the book. So one of the ways I did that was to write about um, this whole idea of Mars colonization. I mean, if you listen to Peter Thiel, who is, you know, probably I would say, absolutely the most kind of prominent exponent of the idea that, you know, the future of our species depends on us getting to Mars. This is his whole kind of shtick. Um, He talks about, you know, the notion of uh, existential threat, be be it from climate change or from, you know, an asteroid hitting the planet. Eventually something is going to happen that's going to make Earth unlivable. And if you take the long view, that is, of course, the case. Um, But his kind of pitch is that we need to before it before something like that happens we need to get ourselves to mars we need to build like human settlements on mars colonies is what he and people like him tend to call them um and we need to get to mars so that we can then expand outwards into the universe and become a multi-planetary species um and i've been really fascinated by this for like quite a long time i, I think part of it is that i'm sort of bewildered by it in a really like basic kind of human way in the sense that like you know i can understand and I share a lot of anxieties around climate change. But the thing about that is that no matter how bad things get on Earth, no matter how brutal the, you know, um, the sort of global warming and, uh, you know, rising sea levels gets, it's nothing compared to the inhospitable, like, uh, vista of, of Mars. Mars is, like, radically inhospitable to human life in a way that no matter how bad things get here, it would never be the case. Um, so obviously the sort of question is, well, why not just invest all that time and money and energy into uh, finding solutions for climate change? Um, but the other thing is that I sort of found myself um, kind of intrigued by this idea that we need to secure the existence of the human species almost indefinitely, as in eventually in a billion years time or whatever it is, the sun is going to run out of energy and it's going to burn out. And at that point we need to have you know, humans spread out throughout the solar system so that humanity can continue to exist and like continue spreading out and, and, and exploring. And, and I kind of, at that point, I kind of go, well, why actually? Like, I don't really, I don't really find that a compelling uh, thing at a, at a human level. Like, you know, if the sun burns out, well, maybe that's, that's a good opportunity to go, well, we've, we've had our day. I mean, we've probably be gone long before that anyway, but uh, you know, so, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing about Elon Musk is that he's, an incredibly kind of persuasive character in a lot of ways for a lot of people, but uh, he's making a lot of money about this. And I think you know, from this, and I think he just, he wants to get to Mars, you know, um, he personally thinks it would be quite cool to uh, be able to live on Mars. Yeah. Um, it brings to mind another one of those tech millionaires, John McAfee, who was the guy, of course, the, the virus uh, technology we all have on our computers. He's another they call him a space cadet but he's, he's, <laughs> he's way out there you yeah. wonder with some of them 
the nature of the business they're in and they made so much money in such a short space of time and did so much do they <laughs> at on some level is they have to be looking for something beyond because all the kind of achievements that people who would have their innovation their go their ability before them it took them decades sometimes yeah. to reach that kind of a level you'd wonder or to put it more frank have they nothing better to be doing but this is the thing i think this is why you know someone like teal and particularly musk actually is so fascinating to me because like um you would imagine uh if if you sort of take as read that capitalism is basically a meritocratic system where the best and smartest people kind of rise to the top you would imagine that someone like Elon Musk, who is now the richest man in the world, would have to be an unusually brilliant mind. And then you listen to Elon Musk talking and you kind of go, what is this like stoner philosophy? What is this kind of half-baked bullshit? And that's really fascinating to me because, you know, it is kind of, um, he's, I'm not saying he's a dumbass, but he's, he's by no means the most brilliant mind of his generation. And like this, you know, both Teal and Musk made a lot of money from PayPal, which is essentially a, you know, piece of financial tech, you know, it's, it's clever and it works, but that doesn't translate to like, you know, being the great philosopher Kings of our time that certain people, particularly in Silicon Valley seem to think they are. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's a lot of that going on in the book as well, where I'm kind of getting to grips with, uh, the sort of the, inner lives and thoughts of these of these people yeah uh well for one no i have to say i'd be honest with you mark the longer i've gone on the more i would say that that theory and you're right it is there that theory of uh the best the most intelligent rising to the top in our capitalist system mm. i think uh there's numerous examples that can debunk yeah. that, unfortunately yeah, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately so, uh, for me for me when i write about elon musk or peter Thiel, what i am doing is writing about capitalism i mean Teal is endlessly fascinating to me, not because he's a particularly interesting person in and of himself, but because of what he represents, you know? And I think yeah. what they represent is this kind of very kind of uh, advanced form of sort of techno-capitalism that we're living under. On a broader scale, and you, you, both in terms of the, the stuff you watch YouTube and you visited someplace and you were in South Dakota and place, but a lot of these doomsday preppers, as they're called, do you get the impression that they're having a good time preparing for the end of the world. Um, yeah, a lot of them are just having a ball, I think, you know, a lot of them are kind of, I say in the book that uh, I kind of realise at a certain point that preppers are not preparing for their fears, they're preparing for their fantasies. So there's an element of like, I don't know if you're familiar with the phenomenon of uh, LARPing, live action role playing, where people kind of go out and they pretend they're in Lord of the Rings or they pretend they're, you know, fighting the, the battle of, of uh, you know, whatever, Battle of Hastings or whatever it is. Um, there's a, a touch of that to doomsday prepping, I think. Um, and it's a very male preoccupation, which isn't to say that there aren't female preppers. You know, they are, there are female preppers out there. And there are preppers that come from all kinds of walks of life and all sort of political persuasions. But generally, it tends to be a very male uh, pursuit. And a lot of it has to do with, I think, a... Uh, a fantasy of kind of returning to former sort of outmoded ma modes of, of uh, kind of traditional masculinity that have, you know, fallen away somewhat in the last few decades. I mean, I, I, I sort of, in the book, diagnose doomsday preppers as, um, I suppose what it is is that like those kind of modes of masculinity have been undermined 
quite a lot over the last few decades by, you know, things like feminism particularly, um, but the civil rights movement, if you're talking about, you know, white men in America, all these kinds of things have chipped away at the sort of cultural prestige of white male, particularly, you know, Americans. And um, prepping is a way to sort of construct this fantasy really of, well, here's what happens if, you know, there's a nuclear strike or there's an asteroid hit. So there's a, you know, massive viral pandemic, uh, civilization collapses, all the things that you, uh, kind of complacent, weak people rely on, which is like, you know, government, uh, you know, other people, you know, quote unquote civilization. It's all just a really thin veneer. Uh, and it's going to fall away very quickly. And you'll see how quickly it falls away when the shit hits the fan. And then only the prepared will survive. And the prepared are, are people who have kind of reverted to those traditional modes of masculinity. Like they're able to build a toilet with their bare hands or they're able to, you know, um, f- you know, field dress a deer or whatever it is and, and you know, hunt for food and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's the sort of, that's the wager I think that that preppers are making, and so there's an element of like, if you if you spend a lot of time sort of meticulously and ardently preparing for those scenarios and thinking through what you would do, what your plan is, how you're going to protect your family, how you're going to protect your house, all that stuff. I mean, you might on some level say, "Well, I hope I never have to use this preparation," but I think on some level there is an element of like, you know. They kind of hope it happens. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that it's all been worthwhile. In yeah. Other words. yeah, and you yeah. get to use all that cool exactly. stuff and all those skills that you've amassed over the years. You know. Yeah, and to be proven right. Mm. Um, you went. You went to various places, Marcus. Say South Dakota. You were in Scotland, New Zealand. You went to Chernobyl. At the end of it all, did you emerge with any optimism? Did you feel better about the world when you came back? Um, for, for a few minutes I did, yeah, which is, the, <laughs> I mean, there's like, the book does have a trajectory to it in that sense. There is a kind of an emotional trajectory to it. Um, you know, and like, I, I was sort of wary writing the book. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but it, basically any books you read about climate change, they always, I mean, there's always like just relentless doom for 280 pages and then there's 15 pages at the end where it's like well here's what we can do and it all is not lost and there's a you know I always find that a bit thin so uh there is a kind of a like an injection of hope at the end of the book but I always wanted it to feel tentative and kind of partial which is what which is what it was for me um the interesting thing is that people oh I think overwhelmingly people who've read the book who I've spoken to and I've heard from have said they found it a strangely hopeful book that, you know, it's kind of weirdly counterintuitively uplifting. And I think part of that is um, there is like, as I said, an emotional trajectory for the book. It begins in like a moment or like a a period of, I'd say maybe not despair, but definitely kind of feeling very black about the future and my role as a parent of, at that point, one very young child at a time when the future just seemed incredibly dark and sort of volatile um almost a sense of like what have i done bringing a person into this world and that was fairly common for like mm. this generation of parents of young kids um but through the process of like writing the book and doing all the things that i did to 
write it or like the places I visited and things that I thought about and people that I talked to, like that was a really hard, it was a hard book to write. Like it was, it's, elements of it were fun and like all the traveling and stuff, a lot of that was fun, but spending whatever it was, two years thinking about climate change and the prospects for civilizational collapse and so on. Like that was a hard thing. And there's, you know, there's a strand running through the book of like me talking to my therapist and I wanted to have that in the book as a way of like kind of signaling towards the kind of sort of mental or like psychological difficulties of, of, of writing the book. Um, but by the time, so there is a, a, a sort of lightening of the mood at the end. A lot of it has to do with the fact that um, for reasons that, you know, in the context of what I've said, seem kind of slightly counterintuitive. But, you know, we had a second child, my wife and I, and um, she's three now, she's about to turn three. Um, but that that was a, a period of, like, real joy and um, a sense of, like, lightening and uh, a sense of kind of hope. But a lot of it also had to do with the fact that I was finishing the book, you know, because I'd spent so long kind of struggling with this thing and, like, writing this difficult book and you know, the closing stretch of the book, there is this sense of lightning. And that has to do with like me going, oh, thank Christ, finally getting to the end of this book, you know? Uh, and uh, so there's an element of that as well. And I wanted that to sort of seep into it, but also I wanted it to feel tentative. I mean, the very last moment in the book is me standing in, in the bedroom with my wife breastfeeding our baby. And I'm reading a an article from The Guardian about like the collapse of insect populations globally and just kind of going, oh, we're fucked but then he's kind of throwing the phone on the bed. And that's like where we are really. Like we know we're fucked, but we're still alive. You know, we still have to live in this present as well as being constantly kind of uh, overwhelmed by the future. You know, we still have to live in the present to the extent that we can. So that's kind of where I wanted to leave the book. And I think people find that hopeful. I don't know if that was my intention, but that's where it is. I think so. Um, I also think that notwithstanding the dark theme and the individuals that you met, uh, the 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 humour that's shot through definitely uh, takes it onto another plane altogether. Mm. Just wondering, Mark. Um, as I said, I think it's fantastic writing style. Um, you mentioned you did your PhD in John Banville. You're unusual. Well, you're not unusual to this extent that even though you 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 were someone who did it earlier, the the idea of nonfiction in the essay has come more become more popular in recent years. But prior to that, most particularly Irish writing, you'd be talking about fiction. Do you have any interest in writing fiction? Um, I mean, not really. I mean, you're, you're, you're right. Like it's, I, I mean, I do write in a way that is probably as, at least as much informed by, you know, novelists, fiction writers, um, and those kind of strategies as it is informed by, you know, journalism or kind of standard nonfiction modes or whatever. Um, but I've never, I won't say I've never, I mean, I've, when I was in my 20s or whatever, I did sort of tinker ineffectually with trying to write fiction. But I think I really found my feet when I started to write the kind of, like, I suppose the term would be like literary nonfiction or creative nonfiction or whatever. And that that was really what started my kind of creative uh, kind of mechanisms properly moving. And that's still the case. I mean, I wouldn't say I never, I mean, the way I think about it, I suppose, is that I don't really have any ambitions to write a novel but there are things that I want to do where maybe presenting them as fiction or, you know, using strategies of, of like, you know, making stuff up might be the best way to approach that project. Uh, but it's not like I want to write, you know, um, a John Banville book or, or whatever it is, you know. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I'm kind of open about it, but 
I think for me, what I'm interested fundamentally in is, is non-fiction. Great stuff. Mark O'Connell, thank you very much for joining us today. Notes from an Apocalypse, published by Grant Books, is out now in paperback. That's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. Tune in on the usual platforms and don't forget your digital subscription to the Irish Examiner. See you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.